Exercise your teacher now, don't I? This is the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. Prepare to get caffeinated. Hey, so it's been a few months, Joe, since we talked. I I am so interested in my first question. Okay, you're obviously, you entered the race how many months ago? Pretty early, so February of 20 or 21. Yeah. So is it exceeding, meeting? Uh, are you underwhelmed? Like, you got to explain this process because every guy I know, so Graham Allen's a buddy of mine too, and every guy that I know is like, this is a like a bare knuckle fist fight that like politics is like a bare knuckle fist fight. So you you gotta walk me through your experience in this, man. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's fairly accurate. I'd say a bare knuckle fist fight. I mean, this is somewhere between um, doing unconventional warfare, going out and doing tribal engagement every day, um, which that part feels familiar. The, I think the meat and potatoes of doing politics to like an SF guy, I think would feel relatively just familiar because you're having to go and, and talk to different people and have different perspectives and seeing how you can kind of make those perspectives, you know, mesh together and then have some sort of a coherent plan. That part feels very familiar when it comes down to the, the fundraising and then going from being, and you probably can relate to this from being a very private person to being a very public person. That's where it's like an unfamiliar bare knuckles fist fight. I guess a, a real bare knuckles fist fight would feel way more familiar than like having to live in, you know, the limelight, which comes with it. I knew that that was going to happen. Um, but then I think a lot of too, just having to deal with, you know, raising, raising a bunch of money, asking people for money and then, you know, really worrying about stepping on people's toes and all that type of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's been, uh, I think I would say it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff I just didn't anticipate. Um, but I kind of knew I was getting into the unknown. So I guess I'm, that's where I'm at. Why, how much, how much money does this cost? Can you talk about that? Like what? Yeah. We cost. I mean, pretty much everybody in DC will tell you like you never have enough money and just so constantly keep raising. The most realistic numbers I've I've heard, and this is based on how the last couple of cycles went. It's it's basically two million dollars, two to three million dollars, like probably closer to three to be really competitive. And that's just because the incumbent that I'm going up against, she's got so much cash like in the bank to even be able to chip away at her. I'm gonna have to be, I think, close to three million dollars, which is good. We're, we're doing well so far, um, but every everything's a struggle because I'm, I'm going up against incumbents, so I don't really get any kind of like big party support, which in a way keeps me free too. So I, I kind of I kind of dig that. So yeah, it's it's big money, man. I think to, to be able to win a congressional seat, you're going to need to be in exceeding one million, probably closer to two million dollars. So and right now, do you think that's your biggest obstacle as far as being elected or unseating your incumbent? Do you think that that's, is it the capital that is going to be your biggest obstacle? I think so. Yeah. And it's not just straight money really because money buys advertisement, buys name recognition. I mean, people that like probably tuned into this podcast to even hear me talk, they're probably politically engaged. They know who I am. They probably know who I'm going up against, but that's not your average American. And, you know, rightfully so most Americans are are probably, um, you know, they're, they're just grinding. They're, they're trying to make ends meet and they're not knee deep in politics. And so they have a side that they vote for. And if you voted for a Republican traditionally, the Republican whose name you recognize the most is probably who they're going to, they're going to pull the lever for. 
on election day. And so I have to break through 12 years of muscle memory for Republican voters. And that's going to take dollars to be able to penetrate the, the airwaves, whether that's the radio or whether that's the internet or traditional TV or just having people go knock on the doors. And that's going to cost money. So yeah, I think it's, uh, I think money is probably the biggest obstacle. Hey, and do you get updated polling data? So can you, can you kind of look at it week to week and see how you're doing directly against your incumbent? Probably not like week to week. We've actually had, because we've gotten some attention, I think with the Trump endorsement and all that, we've had some pretty legit polling outfits that are interested in this district. So uh, we had Trafalgar, who that's the, the company that called the Trump 2016 election pretty accurately when, when everybody else said the Trump was going to get blown out of the water. And then they called Virginia and New Jersey just a couple months ago within one tenth. They did some polling out here about a month and a half ago. That has me leading in first place, uh, Democrats in second, and then the twelve-year the incumbent. She's in third place right now. So technically, she wouldn't make it out of the the primaries if that polling is accurate. And every indicator we have is that it is accurate. And the cool thing about that Trafalgar poll is that forty-seven percent of the people polled in it who put me in first place they self-identify as Democrats. So mm-hmm. there's some good. It's a good crossover here. I think we're pulling people over to our side. And, and explain to me how the 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 district or, or your your population is broken down into red, blue, and and purple. Can you kind of unpack that? Actually, explain it again because it'd be a good reminder for yeah. the show. It's like, where are you running? Who are you running against? If you not to stump her, whomever it is, uh, yeah. Kind of paint the background again for everybody because Joe's a very qualified former special operations guy. Uh, we've known each other for a few years now. He's you know, he's in the bare knuckle fist fight game of politics. I've seen him on a couple of different shows. He was on uh, Tim Pool's show, Tim Cast, which is a great, great episode if you want to check that out. He was on Tucker Carlson's morning show, which is another great segment I think they did on you. I know you've been on others that I can't remember. You're on our show, obviously. But um, if you're looking for other shows where Joe's talked about things that he's doing and then where he is as far as uh, on Instagram and, and are you doing anything on YouTube? Yeah, so we did YouTube and we got pulled off and we got put back on. Um, so yeah, we're we're on YouTube, we're on Rumble, we're on YouTube for now. We're on we're we're on pretty much everything. Um, anticipating any day that we get we get zucked, um, <laughs> but so we're on Rumble and Getter and all the alternative ones as well. But yeah, man. So the uh, the district I'm running is Washington's third congressional district. For people who aren't familiar with congressional districts, which who who would be? Um, we are Southwest Washington, so we're just north of Portland, Oregon, right along the Columbia River. We the district is geographically very big, but kind of sparsely populated. A lot of rural communities. Our major population center is Vancouver, Washington, which is essentially a suburb of Portland, just on the other side of Columbia. A lot of folks would define Vancouver and Clark County um, as purple. There's a population density in Vancouver that I think is is purplish. Um, however, the rest of Clark County, as you start to get out in the more rural areas, is gets considerably more and more red. Uh, so we go all the way out to the Pacific Ocean, which is pretty awesome. We're one of two districts on the entire continental West Coast that are Republican that touch the Pacific Ocean. And then we go all the way up to the outskirts of Olympia, which is our very left-leaning uh, capital here in Washington state. So we don't actually go into the urban center of Olympia, but we have some of the rural outskirts. Redistricting is still being done. We may get some more uh, of that county that's up there by Olympia, which is great because it's rural. We don't hit the urban areas. Uh, kind of right up to the back of Fort Lewis, JBLM. And then we go all the way as far out east right now to uh, to click at that, which is um, it's not what you'd think of with the Pacific Northwest, more high desert, uh, a lot of wine, a lot of vineyards, a lot of uh, agriculture and uh, farming out there. 
So very geographically diverse district. Um, right now we're at a R plus five or R plus six, depending on what you read. And that means we've just, we consistently vote for Republicans. Um, the New York times has this really cool New York times and Washington post have this like Trump rating because they kind of delineate like Trump Republicans against like traditional GOP. The incumbent I'm going against is very traditional corporate GOP. You really can't tell the difference between Jamie Herrera Butler, the woman I'm running against and like you know, your, your party line Obama or your party line Bush, just very uniparty, stereotypical establishment type of Republican. Um, the Washington Post and New York Times are saying that we're like a Trump plus 11. And I don't know how they do that math. That just means that Trump and the more, I'd say, populist wing of the Republican Party does very well out here. So um, although we're in a very dark blue state with a very activist, leftist, crazy governor, um, this is a solidly Republican district. So that's uh, it's kind of the breakdown of the area. I'd say most places are really rural. Uh, the logging community is huge out here. It, one, at one point in time, was the heart and soul of, not, of like the whole Pacific Northwest, really, but especially in the district between Skamania, um, between Lewis County. And then we also have a bunch of ports along the Columbia River that give us access to the Pacific Ocean or all the way access into the interior of the United States all the way up into Idaho. So the logging industry was huge here, been gutted out over the last you know two, three decades just because of overregulation and the environmental uh, lobbyist agenda. But that's the that's kind of the snapshot of the district. The woman I'm running against, Jamie Hurra Butler, um, she voted for the impeachment of President Trump. That's really what's put her in play. Mm-hmm. However, prior to that, she needed to be, I think she's a case study of why we should be primarying people way more often. She voted against the construction of the Southern Border Wall. She voted to save Obamacare. Antifa ravaged our district over the last year. She's done nothing about it. She actually voted to stop Trump from being able to deploy federal troops to be able to deploy the National Guard um, here to quell some of that violence. And violence really hasn't ended for people who have who, who don't pay attention to the Northwest because the media just doesn't cover it anymore. Um, really, she's voted for amnesty for illegal immigrants every time it's been on the docket. She's taken money from Big Pharma. She's praised Jay Inslee for his COVID policies, which have cost people, their jobs between the small businesses being crushed, between the state vaccine mandates. So very much a corporatist Republican, um, corporate Republican type. So that's the, that's the woman I'm running against. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think we are seeing that clear delineation between aspects of the Republican party. So the way that you're, you're defining it would be the more corporatist Republican uh, and I would say the more uh, the the newer Republican Party, which I think would be more defined as pro-Trump. Uh, and I don't even know if if is it clear or are they are they delineating between the two segments of the Republican Party now, even from your perspective? And are they clearly defining those two segments? Are they defining them as like because you hear it right? It's like rhinos on one side, uh, which honestly. What is it? What is a what is a rhino? Like, do you even know what it is? Yeah, right. I I mean, it's a great bumper sticker. That's the thing. Like, there's a lot of people right now. I think that are trying to define what that is, and various people have you know their own agendas. So, I I think the the core of the Republican Party they love how popular Trump is, and so they will call other people rhinos, and then they will say America first. And they'll like, they'll say some Trump like type of dunks on Twitter or in social media. But then if you ask them, Hey man, like define America first for me. And they have a hard time. A lot of them will have a very hard time doing that to me being a true America first, you know, Republican, this new right is being a populist and a nationalist. And if you say nationalist, some people's hair gets lit on fire, but basically that just means I want to put my country and our people above everything else. And that means 
We need to bring back a ton of jobs, all of our manufacturing. We need to deregulate our natural resources industry. We basically need to create an environment that allows someone to leave high school, not go into an exorbitant amount of college debt, not have to move to a big city and to be able to get a decent paying job that allows them to support a family on one income. And that needs to be the vision for the future. And that includes, you know, really sealing off our borders from a bunch of excessive immigration, because when you really look at immigration, it's kind of an assault on the working class and the working class is the most diverse class that we have in the country. The, the, those who rule above us don't want us to realize that they want us fighting over stupid things like pronouns and race because they don't <laughs> want us to all, they don't want us to all wake up and realize that we're getting screwed by the same elites on wall street and in the beltway. So that's, that's kind of a, to, to me. And you, and, and a big part of that is you have to be willing to go after the corporate class. And that's something that where you'll get a lot of pushback from Republicans on, because they'll, they'll say, well, if you want government interference in any kind of sector, um, then you're some sort of a socialist or you're like a Bernie Sanders type. But really, the, the true message of America first nationalist populism is that, hey, there is a huge, there is a huge unbalance in our power structure right now. And American workers, the average American who probably lives paycheck to paycheck right now is really struggling and they don't have to be people like Bush, people like Obama. They would say that this is just the, this is part of our our natural evolution. These jobs are going away and people have to get more educated and we're going to take away jobs. We're going to rely on the rest of the world. We're going to be just a nation amongst all these other nations in the world. Um, and this is our lot in life when really nationalism says like, no, that, that was a decision that was made by people without the consent of the American people. And we can bring all these things that we need back here. We can build them at home. We can provide a way for people to actually get a decent paying job without going to mass amounts of debt. And we can really just focus all the energy of government on doing the best that we can for our people. So this is more of a question and a statement, which is, you know, putting your country or an American first uh, optic specifically related to, to how we want to conduct policies and politics. It seems like a very bipartisan thing that we would all be interested in because we're taxpaying U.S. citizens. I've often wondered, and this is this could be more of a philosophical question, but I've often wondered why does that become a left or a right issue? Because if we're all paying taxes and we're all uh, we're all citizens of the United States, shouldn't we be attracting both the left and the right to that agenda as far as putting our country and our countrymen first? It doesn't seem like this is a Democrat or Republican issue. It seems like a no-brainer to me. It actually seems fairly logical. Yeah, and I, and I think people are waking up to that. And I do think that's why, like for my Trafalgar poll, we had 47% self-identified as Democrats who were like, Hey, that guy, Joe, like he seems like an all right guy. I'll give him a chance as opposed to everything else that's on the ballot. I, I think the big thing is, is that uh, for far too long, we had Republicans and Democrats who really kind of said very different things, but then the results would end up being the same. Like Bush and Obama at first glance, they're very different people, but we know from fighting the wars, like their foreign policy was kind of essentially the same thing. Um, and then on, on the corporate side, I think you just had the, the corporate uh, elite own both sides of the party. And this is where I understand why some people don't like Trump because of the mean tweets and, and all that other stuff. But this is really where you see the revolt against Trump come in because Trump did come in and he flipped a lot of it on its head. I mean, foreign policy was the first thing he went after and said, like, hey, guys, this just didn't work. And a lot of average Americans are like, oh, my God, you're right. Your average American who wasn't deeply steeped in like the neoconservative principles or the new the liberal world order, they didn't know what any of that crap meant. But when Trump came in and said, like, this foreign policy is stupid, we've got nothing out of it. And you guys lied to get us into it and we're going to leave. Your average American was like, oh, well, actually, that makes sense. I, I didn't just get lectured to. 
you know, by a bunch of gray haired foreign policy guys. But what that guy said makes sense. And he was doing the same thing, too, with American manufacturing. He was speaking to such a such a larger issue where he said, hey, this country doesn't make anything anymore. We're not making the best deals for our people. China's screwing us over. And then you had Republicans and Democrats who I think, you know, they were just like, the, the curtains just got lifted and all the Draculas got exposed because they're like, well, you can't say that because that's going to that's gonna upset the complete and total balance. They want to talk about all these complex economic issues. But your average Americans were like, wait a sec. Actually, you're right. We have all these factories that we used to have. We used to have lumber mills in my district. We used to have all the different manufacturing uh, factories in, in Ohio. We had a natural resources industry in West Virginia and Pennsylvania. And so that's where I think you saw a lot of the rage come against Trump, especially because those same people had controlled the media. And so I, I do think it, it's become incredibly partisan because, again, they, they want us fighting over stupid things like pronouns and like race and not to discount the fact there's been racism in America and that type of stuff. But they use this woke ideology because they would much rather have us enraged at each other than realizing, hey, your average American or they, they've essentially been getting screwed over by the same people. Mm-hmm. No, I, I've seen the very, I, I see it, the world very, very similar to you, which is, you know, they keep everybody gaslit on these uh, fairly insignificant issues in order to distract us from the things that will actually directly impact our lives and the generations of Americans that come after us. Uh, because if they have us arguing over uh, a very insignificant, when I say it's not insignificant for those people, but a small percentage of Americans that are relatively little impact as far as our strategic footprint in the world. If they keep us arguing over that little shit, then mm-hmm. we won't actually hold politicians accountable for their actions, their long-term actions directly represented yep. states. I feel it in our company, uh, I get this question all the time. Why don't you guys have an American-made thermos? I get it all the time. And I go, because there is not a stainless steel double wall manufacturer in the United States, actually. They don't exist. So when my customers say, I want you to make everything in America, that's great. I'll need $20 million to open a factory to one, develop, and then have the manufacturing capability here for stainless steel for thermoses. And that thermos will also cost you at a minimum of about $150 a pop because that's how much it's going to cost based on environmental regulations, based on labor restriction, on X, Y, and Z. So I get... I want the same thing, by the way. So I want the same thing that my customers do. I would much prefer to have everything made in America. I would a thousand percent want that. But if every one of my thermoses was 150 to $250, I wouldn't be able to. <laughs> right. I wouldn't be competitive. Yeah. And uh, it, it's the same thing. And I've seen it with textiles too, where, you know, this shirt yeah. it, as a, uh, is a tri-blend, uh, uh, tri-blend. It's like, it's like cotton polyester and nylon. Is that right, Derek? Yeah. So there is not a, a good... When I say good, that's there's a significant disconnect between high quality manufacturing and what American manufacturing even has the capability to do yeah. in the United States. So even though you want an American made shirt, you don't want an inferior product. So you still right. want a high quality product and you want it at a reduced price. So I've I continue to have these conversations with people like you because I think it's fundamentally something that. Americans have to understand some of these capabilities are gone. We don't have yeah. even the the intellectual or experience based knowledge to have some of the manufacturing capability. Right. You have to bring it back from places in Asia 
to do what we're trying to do. Yep. Uh, we have this conversation, um, you know, Jocko, you know who Jocko is pretty much everybody. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We're having this conversation because he's got his American made geese that he uses for uh, origin, which is a great product. But we were talking about like cotton, cotton mills, like how do we, you know, bring back American manufacturing? There's such a small percentage of businesses that have this like unique, unique azimuth. And I think that's where business and politics combine with an American first. When I say we're tax paying, we're tax paying citizens. How do we unite our agendas to make sure that we are creating jobs? Like I want high quality, high paying jobs here in the United States. I want manufacturing. I want to be able to hire more people. I want to be able to do more things for everybody. But if we don't have this combined interest between politics and business, to your point, corporate and the voter, right? So the corporate establishment politician and then the voters that I think more directly represent most of us, there is that disconnect. From your perspective, what has contributed? Because I guarantee you've been researching this and reading on it and listening to things. What has directly contributed to this? Do you think it's greed? Do you think... Uh, do you think politicians are greedy? Do you think they're corrupt? Do you think it's a combination of of stupidity, corruption? Like outline why why you think we're even here having this conversation. I mean, I think greed is the simplest answer. I don't think it's the only right. answer. I mean, obviously, like the when we decided to send all of our manufacturing overseas, what we were told was, hey, they can build it overseas cheaper. Don't ask why. We don't want to get into that with like slave labor and all that because that's going to make us feel bad. Uh, right. But they can build it cheaper, and therefore it will be cheaper over here. And that whole trickle down economics, which I think some there's some legitimacy to trickle down economics, but that being the end all be all of like, hey, if the goods are cheaper, that's going to be better for everybody else. Well, you just skip the biggest part where you took away everybody's jobs and you took away all of our institutional know how. So hauling out of the economy, but then also like the for me too, what we've seen since the pandemic, like the national security implica- implications of. We can't make anything over here anymore. We can't make we can't make critical things like PPE. We can't make our own vitamins. We can't make medicine. Like that's a national security issue. Uh, but then also what it did to the economy. So I do think greed is kind of at the core of a lot of that. These corporate interests were able to make a absolute killing. They were able to make fortunes off of all this. And politics runs on money. It, I mean, it just it really does. And I don't know. I've had some really good discussions about like, hey, what happens if we if we cut off all pack money, all super pack money. And there's a part of me that really likes that. Um, but there's also another really, I think, interesting argument that says like, hey, money is speech and where, you, where and how you spend your money is essentially free speech. And I respect that too. So I don't know what the right answer of getting, I think the more big money that we can get out of politics, the better, because that does take away a ton of power from these these major corporations, essentially from Wall Street and, and all the lobbyists in, in Washington, DC. But I, I really do think that because it was a net positive for the elite to get rid of like a lot of our manufacturing capabilities and send them overseas, they were able to keep they were able to keep that scam. They've been able to keep that scam going for quite a while, and especially considering they they control the media. And you have politicians like me. You know, if I if I pull this off and I get elected in twenty twenty three as a congressman, it's like, hey, Joe, congratulations, you're a congressman, and now you need to really start looking at your uh, your next race because in two in less than two years, I'm back on the ballot, and I got to earn that. Is it $3 million? Is it $4 million? Like, we don't know. Are the Democrats going to, are they going to pony up $4.5 million? Right. And so if you're these major corporations and you can play both sides against each other, 
when you've got that much money and like, that's, that's where it's at. And then who gets undercut and all that? Like we, we started out trying to, to fix the problem of like, can you actually buy, buy a decent made in America thermos here? Because that would be a net positive and we'd bring back all those jobs. But that all just got forgotten about because I got an election in 18 months and I need whatever big corporate pack money, you know? So I, I think, I think greed is really at the core of it. And this is where I disagree with a lot of Republicans and a lot of libertarians whose principles I generally agree with and generally like, but the practicality of, hey, you can't have the free market bring back our manufacturing. It's just not going to happen. The free market's going to look for what's best for the free market. So this is where you do need government intervention. You do need a legislative branch and a presidential and an executive branch to say, like, our, our nation's mission right now is to become independent, is to make jobs for Americans. We're going to use tax cuts. We're going to use tariffs. We're going to use government funds to bring back all these capabilities here. And this is going to be our national mission. This is going to be our war on globalization to strengthen our nation. I think we need something like that um, to really, truly make this happen. I, well, there's a, there's a combination of questions here. One is, why do you think that is non-palatable for certain American citizens? Why do you think that's a non-palatable issue for uh politicians because what we're talking about really is a, a a subsidized economy that brings back the manufacturing or portions of our of our manufacturing capability that builds jobs that directly uh, contributes to national security that directly contributes to the national economy so what what are the counter arguments to that I know you've heard them so what what are the con- what are the counter arguments to this so, I mean, the Republicans will get, they'll wax philosophical. Um, and, and this is where like a lot of libertarians who I love, they'll be like, no, look, we can't have, they'll, they'll go with these zombie Reagan quotes of like, well, government is the problem. We can't have, and, and there's no meat and potatoes behind it. They will say just on a principled stance, we have to align with the, this free market notion that the private sector always knows best. Mm-hmm. And I like, okay, yeah, I'm kind of there. For your average American, the more government messes intervenes in their life, the worse off it is. But at some point, like we have to have this fundamental question: like, are we an economy or are we a sovereign nation? Because an economy is going to operate one way and it's going to do what's best for really the bottom line of how much money they're making. But the sovereign nation is going to do what's best for its people. And so I, I think we have to return to sovereignty and return to the nation state. And that's kind of like where nationalism comes in. And so that's the Republican side. The left, because I think in the last, I mean, at least since the Obama era, if not before the corporate America has really gone all in with the left and they realize that the potent tool of whatever you want to call it, wokeism, critical race theory. Um, and then on the corporate side, the, what is it? Environmental societal or, and environmental societal and, and governance, the ESG ratings, they can use all of that really as eyewash to drown out all the populist voices. I mean, it happened. Tim Poole talks about it all the time with the Occupy movement, how the Occupy movement was fighting to keep jobs in America. A lot of very Trump-esque things coming from the populist left. And same with Bernie before whatever happened with Bernie when he took away when he took the money. Like a lot of the principles that Bernie was fighting for on the economic side were very populist, very pro-worker. And so I, I think that the the left has the, the left and the corporate left has done a really good job with their propaganda of keeping us fighting over these, these woke issues, um, keep us fighting about this environment, this altar of environmentalism that lets us kill off all these jobs and says, well, we're not going to, we're not going to log anything from our forest. We're not going to have any energy independence here. We're not going to drill our own oil here. We're going to get it from 
the rest of the world. And somehow that's supposed to make it all better. But but they've got great PR because they, they control the media. I mean, if they don't like a story, they can literally have it scrubbed from the internet. But when we talk about real meat and potatoes, everything that you just outlined, when, it, when people are confronted with that, they have a really hard time arguing against it. So instead, they do like to go with the other social issues or some principled stance against why the government can't do X, Y, or Z. So I, I think the more that we have these discussions and we actually articulate it, I think the more ground that we'll gain with people. Yeah, it, it, I, I often think about things as, you know, we have an individual liberty perspective, which is, you know, my individual freedoms. And uh, I'm, I'm very much a, I would say, an individual libertarian, which is I, I want as much freedom as you can give me in the context of, I think that it's my God-given right. I think that this is the, really? You can't really give people too much freedom. That's not really. <laughs> I don't think that's a thing. Right. Now, like when it comes to uh, you know interference in other people's lives, you know specifically with violent acts or it affects somebody in a negative way. Of course, those are where laws laws intercede uh, or intersect. And you know, of course, nobody wants to be you know robbed or beaten up or any of those things. That's why we have police forces. But when it comes to business, and I think you know, totally separate thing aside, which is individual liberty, and then when we look at corporate liberty, people sometimes get these things very confused. And I look at it from from a business perspective, obviously now because with with the size of the company, a lot of the things that we talk about inside the, the boardroom or inside the, the rooms, we talk about environmental sustainability. And you know, growing up in a, in a logging town with a you know, logging family around the you know, a heavy agriculture community, I, I didn't work on a farm or talk to farmers that had an interest in killing their, 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 their ground. Because... Right. They wanted to pass their farms. They wanted to pass their profession onto their kids, their grandkids, and, the, and their great grandkids. And mm-hmm. big corporate, profit-driven agriculture entities that I've seen in in a lot of these places overseas in South America, where we've exported some of these things, and it's all about profit. We're talking about shaving, you know, pennies on a commodity. They don't give a shit. What they're yeah. about is, and coffee is a really good example. Is that they'll clear cut. And you know Brazilian rainforests or forests, and then they'll plant coffee in the worst conditions to grow it because it'll be out in the open. It won't be shade grown. It won't be in a natural circumstance. They'll pump it full of uh, agriculture, you know, fertilizers and things like that. They'll essentially kill the soil. They won't rotate crops. They won't do it in a sustainable way. And then that drives down the price of the coffee. And then it makes Folgers and Maxwell House and everybody else really happy because they get nice, cheap coffee. And then it goes back to the consumer and the consumer is like, you know what? I paid $8 for, you know, two or three pounds of coffee. This is great. But it comes at a cost. We've, when I travel in South America and I talk to coffee growers, they're just like the farmers that I grew up with. They're yep. people that have inherited these farms from their grandfathers or, you know, their fathers or whomever. They, 99% of these guys have zero interest in growing something that is non-sustainable. But what we, I think, as a country, the expectation as a consumer is that we have to get into this frame of mind is that we can't just expect everything to be cheap and fast. We have to... We have to... And and when we have these environmental conversations, I've had these environmental conversations with a lot of like my libertarian friends because I, 
you know, of course I've identified as that for a long time, but I look at it and like, there does have to be some form of government intervention when it comes to economics, because if it's all profit, people will do anything they can to appease the profit line and they will not adhere to specific things when it comes to, we'll call it long-term sustainability. When it comes to um, like child exploitation is another one because child exploitation on some of these farms is a real thing. Use child labor. So you have to go to these farms. You have to look at their farming practice. You got to look at who's, who's actually picking the coffee beans. You have to make a determination if they're good people and if they're good farms. Without some of these controls, humans are humans and yeah. they will do what it takes to eke out a profit. Um, so, and I found that hard at times with, and I don't know if you find the same conversation because when I'm talking to a lot of hardcore libertarians, it's the same thing, which is there should be, it's a free market. Everything is free. Yeah. Everything. There's no government uh, intervention. Do you find it hard at times to coalesce like some of these ideas as being, you know, a conservative yeah. voted for Trump? And also like, do you, do you find that difficult to articulate your... Yeah, it, because it, it's hard to fit into a soundbite, I think is the biggest thing. Like people want to hear like, you know, in, in 30 seconds, tell me like all your policies. And it's like, okay, I can't do that, man. Like that's why, that's why like, I, I mean, I, I do network news anytime I get a chance because I got to get my name out there. But I find it to be like one of the most annoying formats ever, you know, because it's like 10 seconds, tell me what's up. And then, so you kind of have to say the, the spiciest take, you know, which really doesn't, you know, it sounds good, but it doesn't say anything. So I, I think it is kind of hard. I mean, for the libertarian types, I, I definitely say, hey, look, you, you really, you got to look at a couple different things. But the big thing I would say is the corporate interests right now in America, I, I, I don't think you have to be well-versed in the histories of all these companies to know that they don't have the best interest of the United States at their heart. Most of them are like the top 20 or so billionaires. They're pretty openly anti-American. I yes. mean, and they, they, they believe in this global world order where they want these, the enlightened elites who are all billionaires um, really to, to run things. And they're okay with having most labor done in China because China is willing to exploit children. They're willing to put people in concentration camps. They're willing to do the darkest things in humanity that we would like to think that like we've evolved past, but that's why we were okay with them doing all of our labor and really the American way of life that allows for libertarian. I think the American at the core of like true American, you know, in a perfect world, it would be, I think it would be very libertarian, but at the same time, this corporate entity is doing everything it can to snuff that out. And what I say to libertarians is you guys are the easiest people in the world to fight. Because if you're the side that says like, I will never have the government intervene, when the other side has power, they will take the government and they will bludgeon you with it. And that's yeah. what we're seeing them do right now. And you have a half the conservative movement, if not more, that's just like, I still don't know. I don't know if I want the government to intervene. Meanwhile, big tech is like taking an act of a sitting president off of, off of Twitter, off of all social media, they're taking news stories about the other side that could damage them, like the you know the Hunter Biden laptop thing. They're making it disappear from the internet. They're can't they're taking away the way the way conservatives can monetize their businesses. Like they are beating you to death with this, and you can't just say like, well, why don't you just build your own social media? Why you know why can't the free market just fix this? Well, they have control of every lever of power right now, and they're they are their biggest desire is to snuff out everything that you hold dear. All the individual liberties that you want, they're trying to snuff that out. They want you, essentially, we've seen in the last year and a half, they want you to submit to a vaccine every single time that you're told to. 
They want you to receive some form of universal basic income. If you have a small mom and pop business, they're going to do their darndest to kill it off. They don't want you get, they, you're allowed to go to church and school when they say that you can. And when you're wearing the right uniform, a mask on your face, like, okay. so everything that you actually hold dear here as libertarian, like this entity that you're refusing to touch because of your principled stand, it is being used to smash you. So that's, that's usually what I kind of, the, the discussion I have to have with libertarians. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, I mean, we're in a really weird spot right now where the conservatives are now the open-minded ones who are saying like, we want, we want the government to stay away from people, stay out of our lives. But at the same time, we also need on our other flank to go after corporate America. So it's, it's definitely, we're, we're on uncharted territory, I think. Yeah, it's, it's so, it's so interesting to me that conservatives have all of a sudden become the 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 freedom party where yeah. like I've I've always looked at that because I've always looked at conservatives from that from the perspective of uh, you know, less federal or less government control the better right I've always looked at it as we're we're the party of small government uh, this small government typically from my perspective depending on how we represent government is always better uh, and definitely I think the 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 my time you know in the military and over at the agency it definitely helped shape that because I saw so much big fraud waste and abuse specifically related oh, yeah. to taxpayer dollars I thought so much and I think you and I touched about it on our last show uh, I, th- I thought so much about how I forget exactly what the bill was in Afghanistan per year, but we, you know, we'll, we'll just call it a hundred billion dollars or whatever it was. Um, yeah. I thought so much about how the reallocation of dollars into American infrastructure, what that would have done for the long-term oh my God. Yeah. ability and strategic importance. Because like, if we look at the condition of, of, of the, of the United States right now, directly against our strategic threats, Russia and China, we were in, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan for so many years, spending hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars, actually, when we start looking at this, sure. thousands of American lives. While these two countries were basically uh, directly reaping the benefits of our distraction. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have gangsters like China, like, and they were willing to, I mean, we, sent all of our manufacturing over there. We're distracted with the wars. They continue to, to grow. And then their, their Belt and Road Initiative, where they basically just come into areas where we were either playing, you know, pseudo-American crusader or pseudo-American savior, but not right. only looking out for our interests. They come in, they're like, hey, we'll cut you a deal if we can get this port. You know, they go into Afghanistan. Well, we're bleeding. And they're like, hey, we'll pay off the Taliban as long as we get the lithium mines. Because <laughs> right. the Americans have this shtick about they want these rechargeable cars. They're going to need lithium for it. So we're just going to go ahead and take on lithium, you know, whereas we're over there waxing philosophically about like little girls schools, you know, which is which is all well and dandy until you look at the culture and the history and the fact that we never actually really built one that probably lasted for longer than two weeks. But right. nobody in the government wanted, wanted to say wanted to say that ugly truth because they all have their careers and you know it's just a really it's a great way to extract money from the taxpayers but yeah it's we're in a we're, we're in i think uh we're in new waters for sure but i think the more that we have discussions like this and really lay out for people like hey this is what we want to do we want to we want to put our country first and bring these things back here i, I think we win people over it, it's uh it's taken a little bit of explaining to do but i think we're getting there well i think the, the counter narrative doesn't make any sense i think it's illogical yeah People, when they yep. say, I want to bring back American manufacturing, I want to put America first. The next thing that typically comes out of somebody's mouth is, you're a nationalist. You're like, okay, but when did that become <laughs> right. a derogatory term? What are you talking about? Of, of course, yeah. I love the United States. Like, 
Like we took an oath to the constitution. Like I, I jeopardized yeah. them in eyesight multiple times. Like, so why, why, right. is, why, why is that a derogatory term all of a sudden to be, exactly. oh, I love the United States. I, I'm a nationalist. I am like, I love the United States. I actually love right. you know, different States in the United States. Like I'm open about it. So how the, the, I think, the the left or the more progressive portions because it's not every person you know not every democrat but it's like these people have villainized the ability to just say i love the united states have a flag in your office right. yeah yeah villainize it and yep. i think man are you guys just like propaganda tools from like the foreign i i think about it from a foreign strategic perspective like you're just oh, a propaganda totally. tool like you're 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 shitting on your own country for no reason other than there's no, what, what is a long-term result? And I've even heard politicians talk about it. It makes zero sense to me to just shit on your own country. It makes zero sense. Yeah, I mean, that's where you can see the weakness in their arguments because they're either going to say you're too dumb to understand it, but then not explain it, or they're just going to go right to the whole like, well, if you're a nationalist, then that clearly means that you're racist. And you're like, no, actually, I, I really want, I want working class wages, which are which is like the most diverse class we have. I want working class Hispanic wages, like African-American. Like I, I say all the time, like, what is like a kid who grew up in rural America to pick your pick your region? And in my case, in the Pacific Northwest, in a, in a failing logging town, what does he have in common with a Hispanic kid in the Rio Grande that also he has in common with a kid, a black kid in the inner city of like, I don't know, Chicago or New York? Like, they're all probably from the same uh, economic class. And they're probably all suffering from the same thing. Globalization, the fact that they, as a young man, they can't get a decent paying job. And when young men can't get decent paying jobs, like bad things happen to our society. Right. Like idle young men are absolutely like completely dangerous, you know, and they're, they're bad for women. They're bad for everything. And what we need to do is find them meaningful work. That's going to give them the ability to start families. Like this is this is not difficult. But then you see the left attack that on every single level. Like you're a racist if you're saying that young men should be out earning a living and trying to provide for a family. Well, that's just sexist. So let's deconstruct <laughs> gender. Let's de let's deconstruct the nuclear family. Then then back to your point, it's like what are you guys getting at? Like you're getting at like so you hate the country, you hate families, you hate you hate gender. Like oh my god, so you do want to completely bring everything down. You know that's where some of the the rhetoric from like the more uh, I'd say radical, but honest wings of like BLM, where they say like, no, 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 it's not racial justice raptor. We're trying to attack America, capitalism, and the nuclear family. It's like, okay, well, at yeah. least they said it out loud yeah. because this is what you guys have been getting at the entire time. At least they said it out loud. So I think, yeah, trying to make them actually defend those positions, I think is key. Well, I think I think that's the thing is I, I think publicly we have to continue to force people to have the the discourse and the debate to force people out of the shadows and say, well, okay, well, tell me why you think that uh, my daughter, eight, eight years old, that also would like to be a unicorn when she grows up, <laughs> the ability yeah. to define her gender and that we should be forced by law to you know provide her the means in order to change. That makes no sense to me. She literally last week wanted to be a dinosaur. Yeah. In a way, that's great. She needs to stay a child doing child things like being imaginative and being in a state of play. We don't need to pollute uh, the, the the human mind with trying to think about an adult problem about, you know, exactly. it's, and it's wild to me that yeah. he wants to have this constant and perpetual conversation about genitalia. You're fucking weird. Like, it's like, go get a job. Go do something fun with your life. Like, stop Seriously. talking about this. It seems crazy to me. It's like, when you want to have a conversation about economics, it'll all of a sudden turn into genitalia. And you're like, stay on topic. Like, half the time, yeah. I don't know if you guys are just like 
a group of ADHD people that can't stay on topic, but we're talking about economics. We're talking about economic sovereignty. We're talking about yeah. all these different things. And it's like, you want to shift into this other conversation that makes no sense, by the way, which is also a form of frustration because it's like, if we can't stay on topic, it makes it impossible to even have a, a like a, a, a diverse dialogue with a meaningful debate that yields people the conclusions that they'll need in order to become a more educated voter, right? Yeah. And a lot of that's the purpose. I mean, really, like, I, I don't think every person's like in on the, everyone on the left that will automatically go to a discussion of like racial justice and like transgender rights. I don't think that they're part of like some conspiracy, but I think culture beats a plan any day of the week. Culture eats strategy for breakfast, is like people will say. And the yeah. left has made this culture so persu- pervasive that they can shift, they can, on a dime, they can shift any discussion into something of racial equity, into <laughs> transgender, into environmentalism. And there's various layers to it. It's ingrained in corporate culture with the ESG ratings. And then all the way down to like, you know, our kids, our kids are about the same age. And literally, if you would have told me before I had kids, like that this was going on, that they were constantly wanting to discuss gender with young children, I would have said, well, that's clearly just some random pedophile that became yeah. a teacher and like they're gonna they're gonna get found out and they're gonna get punished. But no, it's the entire culture there that they've set up within our education system across the board. I mean, I talk to people all over the country. Like this is the culture of the education, and and I do think at the the grander scheme, the the corporate folks, the permanent ruling class, as I call them, the combination of unelected bureaucrats in our government, and then the the guys on Wall Street, they love this woke stuff. They love whatever you want to call it, woke CRT. Because it always lets us divert from, hey, wait a sec, you guys are screwing us over. It right. lets us divert from that. And we don't have to have that. They don't have to have that conversation. They get their way out. It's really um, like almost right out of the old uh, OSS, like simple sabotage manual, like how to, how to disrupt organizations. Like you create committees, you get into pointless arguments, like you circulate memos, you continue to ask questions. Like it's like textbook simple sabotage, you know, and, I'm, and, they're, and they're doing pretty well at it, you know. I, I wish it wasn't so painful because it is ridiculous. Like it's like it's so ridiculous when you yeah. think about it. It's like this this distraction because you know I uh, here's here's a great example, right? Name uh, you know corporate entity X uh, using uh, child exploitation or child labor in factory Y in China for you know a tennis shoe or whatever it might be. But as long as you post a black square on your <laughs> exactly right. You, you you can wash all your 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 you know yeah. corporate unethical behavior. You just flush that right out of the system because you're all good, right? You're, yeah. you're good to go. And you're exactly right. It allows them to uh, a, have a, kind of this uh, what do they call it? The, the moral posturing, right? Or the mm-hmm. to age within this, identify themselves as something. I had this conversation actually with. Um, a group of bankers, they were talking about a, a, a diverse board. And they were talking about California is, is requiring uh, at least, I think it was like one female and maybe a transgender board member on a community. And I was like, so once again, what does a person's genitalia have to do right. with business acumen directly related to a very specific professional endeavor? And I, I get it. Like, hey man, I we I have I have female on my I have females on my board, like, but they're there not because of 
you know, their exterior. It's because of what they have up here because they have right. a military background, they have business background, they fit the criteria because they fit the criteria because of their gray matter up here, not because of how they were reproducing or practicing the, to reproduce, which seems completely contradictory to any successful business endeavor that I've ever thought about. Because if, when you think about it, even in the military, what if Saf was like, you know, all of a sudden, like guys, you got to go to 50% female, male on, you know, ODAs, 50, 50, yeah. sex. How would that change the makeup of special operations, special forces? Would it be more successful? I mean, it would definitely change the physical requirement because what is it? 10% yeah. of this is female, something like that, right? Yeah, probably, probably around there. Yeah. yeah. No, it would be, yeah, it'd be disastrous. And and it would just, that would become the only thing that the force would focus on then, which I think is the point. And then the second that the force kind of got their footing on that, they would be like, we changed it, guys. You're actually going to need to have like three trans people per ODA. Like, because women are kind of, uh, women women are kind of insulting. You know, we just need, we need some more trans diversity in there. And so really then all the institution would do is just constantly be looking for Hey, are are we are we woke enough yet? Have we uh, you know atoned for our sins enough yet? And that's the thing I think with like the CRT, it's great because the the goalposts constantly move. I get people that are like, "Hey, isn't CRT just inherently anti-white?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah, right now it's inherently anti-white, but it, you, you'll see any kind of any time a group raise starts to uh, raise their status or become a threat really to the status quo and say go back to the core issue of like, "Hey, you're screwing over like working class people," that group will be canceled as well. Like if Asian Asians do too well. And Asians are suddenly now lumped in. In Washington State, by doctrine, Asians are part of like the white little box that you check. And that's because Asians have, have done very, very well. I mean, you saw the same thing when Trump made a bunch of gains down the Rio Grande Valley. They're like, oh, these Hispanics down there. Or Miami-Dade County in, in Cuba or in uh, with, Cuba, with Cuban-Americans flips. And all of a sudden, they're like, well, Cubans aren't really Latinos anymore. It's yeah. like, okay. So that's the whole thing is like, you, you can if you can constantly move, it goes back to like the OSS Simple Seven dodge. Like, yeah. If you can constantly move the goalposts and you get to be the arbiter of what is good and what is just, like you just keep moving it every time. It's like that shell game or whatever you know analogy you want to use. That's that. It's just a really it's a, a system of control. I, and you're right. I think there is a very distinct difference that uh, I think the military really identifies for a lot of guys, which is we have this commonality because most of us are are united by an economic divide, right? Like we're we're regardless of where we're from, whether it's Miami or Colorado or Denver, Colorado or Southern Louisiana or Northern Idaho, I remember having this conversation. It's like, I have more in common with an African-American from Louisiana that grew up with, uh, you know, grew up in a rural community below the poverty line. I have more in common with him than I do the guy that grew up in Connecticut and his dad was a, you know, a private equity guy. Like, right. I'm, and you know, maybe that that guy's white, grew up with a private equity dad, like you know, went to all the best schools. I know him, but actually, the, who I have most in common with is actually the African American that's you know grew up in a rural community yeah. below the poverty line because those are the same people, and I think it teaches you that we're all kind of bound, not necessarily by by the race or the color of our skin. It's it's based on our experiences and what we have in common really force. It's a forcing function within our society. I think it's actually one of the last forcing functions we have to be able to look at everybody 
and all the differences and say, actually, I have fucking nothing in common with that white guy because he grew up completely different than I did. But actually, the dude over there, the Hispanic guy that you know uh, came across the border with his mom at four years old and grew up in a working class family, he and I are best friends because right. we grew up like poor. You know, basically in a single, you know, I grew up in a basically a single wide in the northern Idaho, like, you know, logging family that people worked in a sawmill. I have way more in common with, you know, those types of people and the people that worked in fields than I do, you know, guys that went to Ivy League schools. And I think that's the same as, I don't know, I'm sure you saw the same thing. And I think we actually touched on it a little bit, but it's that forcing function that allows you to identify and have commonality with people based on yeah. economics. And, I don't know if there's a way, like, I don't know if there's a way for Americans to get that experience outside of the military. Have you seen, can you, can you think of any other ways that we might be able to like force that function? Yeah. I mean, the military, and this is another reason why I think the left is going so heavily after the military. I mean, there's a couple of different reasons, but I, I think they, they're, they're very threatened by everybody coming in and, and being the military that at least that we came into, like we were all equally like pretty useless. Like <laughs> there was, the system didn't, didn't care who, you know, what our last name was or who our dad was. We were all like dumb privates or, you know, the officers, they were dumb lieutenants and everything was based on like, could you hack it or not? Like nobody really cared. Um, and, and I think the left wants to get rid of all of that. And the military is one of the last bastions. They, you know, they get rid of competitive sports and schools. They get rid of boy scouts and all that type of stuff. But the military, especially if the GWAT, because the war hit so hard and we needed people to go fight the war, I think they let that remain a very, you know, very much a meritocracy. So now they're heavily going after it. And this is the last thing they want is a very, you know, a meritocracy-based organization. So now they're they're going in and they're saying, well, we think half of you guys are secret white supremacists. And it's like, that doesn't make any sense because we just fought two decades of war together. And this wasn't a big issue. And that's why I have a real issue of guys like Austin. It's like, dude, you know, you were here, you're from our ranks, like you're African-American four-star general. Like, I'm not saying that nothing racist ever happened to him. Maybe it did. I don't know. But to say now that after 20 years of us fighting shoulder to shoulder and me literally having to salute you, you're saying that this is a racist institution. Like, okay. Yeah. I, I don't agree with that. I mean, but to, to your question, like, I think that the, the left has done such an amazingly successful job of eroding any kind of like national pride that we could have together to accomplish some sort of a national program that right now would be very difficult. Like I, I really like the conversations around some form of a national service, like not necessarily in the military for those who want to get to the military, go to the military, but right. some sort of an American, you know, civil corps where, Hey, you are, you're going to go, we're trying to bring back our manufacturing industries. You're going to be paid a decent skill. Uh, you're going to be paid a decent wage. And we're going to train you how to do something in the industries because this is something our country has to accomplish right now. Our country has to bring back all these capabilities and we need you to do your duty to be a part of that. I, I think that that would be very powerful and very uniting for more the American people. Cause right now I just, they have us so divided right now. I don't see any other way to do it. And then especially with, I don't ever want to have to have a draft and we deploy World War II style. Every military age male has to go fight. I never want to see that happen. I'm against that ever happening from a foreign policy perspective. Um, but there was some good in that. Like our, our grandparents' generation was incredibly united because of what they went through. And since then, I just, especially with the all-volunteer force, like two decades of war, and there's less than 1% of us that like feel that camaraderie. I think that's a, one of the big reasons why I think veterans sort of feel disconnected when they leave the military. Cause you know, you were all in at one point in time 
And then like you step out and you're like, oh wait, they, they, everybody in the country hates each other. I, I didn't realize that. I really <laughs> like I really liked the people that I worked with who were from all over the country. You know, it's, yeah, I think I think it's something that we have to tackle as a nation and, and it's gonna be hard. It's gonna be hard. I see it. I feel it and I see it, you know, obviously like we go through our ups and downs with, uh, you know, the left and the right both, but I feel it on the gaslighting on the left and the right, right. It's like this over-exaggeration to kind of mobilize different sections around false narratives or whomever it is. Like I, I try to steer clear of it as much as I can, because it's just like, we have our direction. We have our path This is what we do, but people are so pissed off. That and I get it, right? I, I understand because you know a year and some change now, lockdowns. Uh, yeah, I, I and and for what reason? You know, I think that that we the, the science behind this whole thing is like totally a, a sidebar conversation. But you know, I think a lot of people are really angry, and they have every right to be angry because I think their government and their systems of government along along the lines from local to state to national, I think. They, they've failed and they've completely failed as far as like being able to galvanize the population and lead them through a crisis. Yep. And they continue to fail because they're capitalizing on yeah. the, the strife and then they're trying to gaslight and independently activate their base versus saying, I think there's, there's a lot of commonality. I, I, I always think that there's a lot of commonality. I, my neighbor, um, you know, they're... Uh, I, I think I was telling this story, maybe even on the last one, but you know, I went to um, a Halloween party during COVID with all my neighbors and kids and stuff. And like my neighbor and I, there's, he's a really good friend of mine. He owns Alpha Munitions, which is a custom brass uh, uh, manufacturer for like long range precision shooting. We're like the only conservatives in the neighborhood. And, um, but the rest of them are Democrats. And we're all talking about like things that are important to us. And we were talking about how, you know, I was putting solar panels on the house and, you know, a backup generator and, you know, why like guns and things like that were important to us because we wanted the ability to protect ourselves. And oh, the neighbors were all like, yeah, we're on board. We, we get it. We, we think the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't even laugh because it's like, we all want the same exact things. We want to be able to go to work, feed our, feed and educate our families. Yep. And we don't want, you know, violence or uh, criminality behavior in our neighborhood. We don't. Like, we all want the same things. We want a stable work and living environment where we can raise our kids and and literally pursue life, liberty, and, and happiness, right? So yeah, there's not this huge divide when you're talking to people. Like, there really, there really doesn't seem like there is. is. But then for whatever reason, uh, and, and I think Joe uh, Rogan was talking about this on one of the shows. It's like something like, 19 out of 20 Facebook pages were like being run by Russian click farms or some shit that the, there's like, a yeah, bunch. yeah. And, and I like, I wonder, I can't help but wonder if we're getting like so spun up by outside, you know, strategic enemies and they're galvanizing around, you know, propaganda basically. And then they're activating and gaslighting people and people are like capitalizing on their anger but you're out on the trail. Like, I, and that's why I'm asking you. You're out on the trail and you're talking to Democrats and Republicans alike. Are we that far apart in the streets when you're shaking hands? I, I really don't think we are. I mean, that's the thing. Um, I, I think the way the social media and our elites 
um, want something drastically different than what your average Americans want. Right. They, but they have so much control over the way money goes into politics. They have control over the media. So you go and you talk to regular people and then you go and you get on Twitter or you get on Facebook and you're like, oh, the country hates each other. And those are powerful emotions. And, and we are being manipulated. And I, and I think the fight that we're having right now against the globalists writ large um, is that we've never had an elite in our country that was so disloyal to America. Every other um, crisis that we faced as a nation our elite saddled up and they got on board with the American program. Like right now we have the combination of wall street and, and the beltway, the people that control the major levers of power there that they are really doing the bidding for the Chinese communist party, sometimes for the Russian bot farms. And then for the conglomeration of, you know, the world economic forum, this new great reset we're going to have where the corporations control all of our lives. Like that's who our leader in bed, but then you talk to regular people and you're like, wait a sec. Like if you identify, as a Democrat, if you can take away all the whole, like, I don't like these tweets that Trump sent thing, yeah. um, what, what, what's the issue? And then even like they use COVID. I think COVID was very effective at scaring and dividing people for a while. But I mean, I mean, down there in Texas, you guys might not feel it or in, or in Utah, since you guys actually have sensible governors down there. But Washington State, we, we've been heavily locked down. Uh, Jay Inslee, he mandated the jab for uh, state workers way ahead of the federal mandate. And so we've had people's lives have been ruined, not to mention the year before that when, when small businesses were just thrashed. And so there is a huge awakening, I think, going on where a lot of folks are realizing like, hey, we've, we've been lied to and we've been played. Yeah. And what we need to do is kind of like unplug from that, whatever social media environment, however you want to, to define it, and start talking to more people. Um, and I think more and more people are coming over. I think a couple of things did that. I think COVID did that because I think a lot of us went into COVID looking at the science and then like listening to the government, like, okay, man, you were, if it's a crisis and people are going to die, you want to wear a mask. Okay. I'll do it. Right. But then you, then, then like, as the layers start to drop, you're like, wait a sec, who's actually benefiting from this? Why are you crushing small businesses? But Walmart is growing exponentially. You know, why are we playing games? If the vaccine was going to help people, why did they delay the rollout just before the election? I mean, that's pretty blatant. You know, how many times are we going to catch Fauci lying? And it's like, okay, so no more good faith, when you want to take liberties away from me, like I'll go back to talking about science. Once you guys drop all the restrictions, then we can talk science. Like you put your gun down and then, then we'll talk science. Um, and, and, but, and I think there's a lot of people coming over to our side. The school boards issue has been another big one too. Cause we've, we just, you know, we talked about all the different woke doctrine and then the, the trans agenda that's getting put into schools. I think the pandemic brought zoom into people's houses. And a lot of folks for the first time were seeing like, this is how my kids are being educated right. and they're mad about it. But then the system wants to gaslight them and say like, you can't be mad about that. You're 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 either making that up or you're some sort of a, a bigot. And it's like, well, no, I'm not a bigot. I just don't want you to tell my freaking six-year-old that there's 10 different genders and they might not know, you know, what they want to be, what gender they want to be when they grow up. You know, and, and like the Virginia primary or the Virginia gubernatorial race that happened, I think that was really critical too, because everything that was going on in Loudoun County, and then you had a Democrat who actually said out loud that parents have no business uh, with their children's education. Like he said that loud and he owned it. And it's like, okay, so now I think you have across the country, there's a lot of folks who are like, okay, wait a sec, we are being played here. Which side is being, not necessarily, which side is being the least dishonest? And that right now, for whatever reason, and I, I'll credit Trump because I'm a Trump fan, but I mean, a lot of people won't, but like the right right now is saying, hey man, we want you to have your liberties back. Right. And that, that's bringing a lot of people over. I have people come with me all the time, especially at medical freedom rallies that are like, hey, 
I like, for whatever reason, in 2020, I couldn't bring myself to vote for Trump. I voted for Biden and I regret it every day. Or I've had a lot more people that come and they're like, you know what? Politics, I always thought was toxic and I hated it. However, what they're doing to my kid, what they've done to my business, what they've done to my church is wrong. And you, whatever you define yourself as, you're speaking out against that. So, hey, like, I'm, I'm here to help. Tell me what's up. You know, so that's, that's been the experience. I, I think there's an awakening going on, um, but it's, I think it's just going to be a long, hard fight. No, I think you're right. I think that the the COVID did a lot of different things, which I think we we've really seen the government for what it was. I think there's a lot yeah, of people that are exactly. pulling the Scooby Doo mask off, going, "What? Exactly. what <laughs> right? Scooby Doo moment where you're like, uh, you guys are idiots. Like, uh, right, I, right. I keep having that same conversation with my my friends that, that want more government, you know, more government, more government, or, or they think government's a, 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 a solution to a lot of different things. I'm like, so you're forfeiting your freedom to stupid people. You realize that, right? Like stupid, self-owned, yeah. greedy people that are you're yeah. you're identifying that there's too much corporate interest and in corruption in politics, and then you're saying, but they should be in charge. Of me, that's <laughs> right. crazy. Like you've lost yeah. your mind, man. Like you've you've gone yep. like lunatics in there. Uh, and, and I think that there's a lot of people, and you're you're 100 right. Where that was my conversation with with uh, you know the people who are really anti-Trump, and I get it too. It's the same thing. It's like mean tweets. Look at the substance of the work. Like start mm-hmm. looking at the substance of the work. He's the only people. He's the only president in a long period of time that that openly held China accountable. Now, whether or not, and, and you can debate the policies and whether or not they were actually, you know, uh, good for the, holding them accountable. He openly yeah. held them accountable. He exactly. openly called for the removal of troops from certain areas of the, like all around the world. Uh, yeah. and, and he went after people that came after us. And yep. we, we've, we've debated, not debated it, but you know, the Iranian, what was it? Soleimani, was that? Uh, yeah, the, yeah. We killed in Baghdad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting topic because I've I've listened to a lot of different podcasts on it. it you know, one side is that should have never happened because it could, would have started World War Three. And I'm like, you, you realize that the Iranians could could barely mount a like a, a, a ground invasion on a groundhog. Like, do you understand that? Right. Like, and they're directly and they've already been at war with us. Yes. So we've been at war with the Iranians for how long? They, they've been openly at war with us for how long? You know, yeah. whether they're using, you know, Hezbollah or fuck, you name the proxy servant for them internationally throughout the Middle East, like name it, who cares? They got something openly and actually they needed it. They need a little bit more of it. Like they needed mm-hmm. a few more doses of JDAM before like we yeah. actually get, we we and I think because if we start holding them publicly accountable for their actions, they would be less apt to do some of the things that they're doing. And you have this fear because I think there's a lack of understanding specifically in the Middle East as to who the players are and what they're doing. They're just like, well, Iranians just minding their own business. I'm like, no, they're not. <laughs> they're absolutely not. <laughs> you fucking lost your mind. Right. Um, yeah, and you get all, you get all these so-called experts too that 
they're so knee deep in the problem. And half of it, you know, when you're that knee deep in the problem, you're trying to confirm like your previous stances and, you know, your reputations on the line. I think there's a lot to be said for an outsider coming in and looking at problems. Not that outsiders should be the ones that are always who we rely on, but sometimes having that person who really doesn't, they're not an expert in the Middle East, they're not an expert in the economy, they can come in and they can identify a systemic problem in a way that I think an expert can't because of the confirmation bias. I think I think one of Trump's biggest successes with foreign policy, especially in the Middle East and with the wars, is that he came in and he was like, well, what's the problem? And they're like, well, sir, ISIS has taken over three different countries. And he's like, well, why don't you guys just like bomb them and get rid of that? You know, meanwhile, you had like you had all the Obamaites who were like, well, the history of ISIS is very complicated. And they're going on this long tangent. And then you had the people that are like, you know, well, the, the, the geostrategic issues of Assad and Turkey and, and, and Trump's like, yeah, I don't care. Like if they hold ground, like bomb, they're, they're flying flags, like bomb those flags. Like, oh, that actually was the right answer. And then the same thing with Soleimani. It's like I told them if they killed an American, I'm going to make it hurt. Who's their top guy? It's like Qasem Soleimani, sir. Well, why isn't he dead? Well, because, and then they go off on this other tangent about why we can't touch Soleimani, and Trump's like, I don't care. Like, that guy, kill him. And sometimes I think that that actually is the right answer. And it's the same thing with everything else we've talked about. It's like, what's America's problem right now? Well, we're, we're putting our workers last and we're not producing anything. Okay, are we working to fix that? Well, no, it's complicated. We're going to have to talk about transgender theory. Like, no, 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 stop. Like, <laughs> we're not going to talk about that. Like, let's, let's talk about what the actual problem is. And that's, you know, I think that's, uh, that, that's at the core of a lot of it. And that, that makes some people very uncomfortable. Then you have to look at like, hey, why are they uncomfortable? And usually it's because they're deeply rooted in the problem of how we got here. And they're trying to, and it's just human nature. I don't think it's conspiracy. Sometimes yeah. there's some conspiratorial aspects to it, but it's it, it's human nature. I saw from my time in the intelligence community, the DOD, like Trump pissed a lot of people off and it was a very human nature thing because he called them out. He was like, these wars are stupid. And so like a lot of these generals, when they made their career over the wars, they had so much pride where they were like, how dare he say that? And I'm like, hey, man, I fought over here, too. And I wish I could say they were successful, but he's right. Like, we screwed right. this thing up, you know, like, and that's it. It just is what it is. At some point, you have to accept reality and just, you know, adjust course from there. Yeah, it, it is so enlightening, I think, from 2009 to 2014. Uh, I, I would I would being, you know, whether it was Cabo Flavrance or wherever it was, but I used to constantly think about how there's this big disconnect between what let's just call the command, right? The, the, the executive function. And then what was happening in the, in the realities of on the ground war effort in Afghanistan, because they would go from, we'll call it, you know, embassy type facilities where you got high gates and guards, and then they would take a armored car from this point to this point, and they'd be surrounded by, you know, a PSD. And, and, and I would say you're looking, you're looking into a fishbowl. You don't understand yeah. what it's like to be a fish. You're, you're separated by three and a half inches of, of bulletproof glass and you're looking into a fishbowl, but you don't know what the fucking reality is of yep. being fish. You're like, but I think the fish, is, <laughs> you know, I think we're going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not really. Like it, it's what we're doing. And, and I mean, that's, that's a totally separate inside conversation, but there's this big disconnect between the actual war effort and what it was going to require in order to succeed there. And, I've had this conversation quite a few times and probably more than people would actually want to hear again. And, but my assessment from Afghanistan was that I don't think the American public 
had the stomach for the amount of violence that it would have taken to succeed there in a very short amount. Yeah. yeah. And, I, I, and even then, like, even if they were comfortable with it, like, and we, and we got it done, like, what would it have mattered? I mean, I, I always thought whenever I was overseas, like, it was really clear cut if we were going after like a terrorist who probably would come to America and murder Americans. And, and the times that I think I was doing that were, were nowhere near as much as I'd like to admit, but really we were over, you know, doing some sort of nation building, going after a random insurgent group. Right. And I used to think like, if, the, if, if I had to explain this to like someone back in my hometown, like what their taxpayer dollars are doing and like what we're putting people in body bags for, would they understand it? You know? And, and like a lot of times I'm like, I don't think they would. And yeah. like, isn't that wrong? Or shouldn't shouldn't this be like very easy to articulate? Like, hey, ISIS was ISIS was kind of common sense. Like, how we got there, that's more more complicated and more of a comedy of like a tragic comedy of errors of us screwing up. But once ISIS like had taken over all those countries, it was like, okay, well, we do have to go do business. We do have to go kill these guys. Killing Soleimani, same thing. Like, this guy's orchestrating killing you know thousands of people in the region and then also hundreds of Americans, if not more. Yeah, it's pretty clear cut. But like, we're over there doing these massive, like, we're going to build the new Iraqi army. Like <laughs> I, I was always like, man, how would I explain that? And then we're also going to go and, and, you know, build dig wells and build little girl schools. And I'm like, okay, even if this works, would I be able to explain this to somebody back home and, 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 and articulate to them why this is incredibly important and why it should cost another trillion dollars. And Hey, just give me one more decade, you know, <laughs> like we see one more decade and one more trillions of dollars. And then I promise you, We'll have the greatest Afghan, Iraqi, whatever you want to call it, national army. And okay, and then what? Yeah, what's next? So transitioning away from where where we were, which is when when you embarked on this, well, quite a while ago, you you talked about how money was probably the biggest obstacle. And I want to touch on that again because uh, where can people go to donate money yeah. to Joe Kent? Yeah, Joe Kent for Congress.com. Super easy. Just Joe Kent F O R Congress.com. So that's that's where you can make a donation. And we're we're actually doing pretty well right now. But that's just thanks to you know individual people out there giving me like 20 bucks, 30 bucks. So our average donation is like $53. Um, obviously nice. we have some bigger donors, which I'm very grateful for, but people just chipping in a little bit. It's actually really helps. So we're we're out fundraising the income on individual contributions two to one. She's hardly making any money from voters saying, hey, I'd like to give you $50. You know, she's getting all the money from special interest groups and PACs who cut, you know, $10,000, $15,000 checks. But on individual contributions, we're, we're doing pretty well on. So jokeinforcongress.com. And I donated. So I would highly recommend you that. Did. I don't, I don't live, you know, in your district, but I believe in what you're doing. I believe in your message. mission. I, I would highly encourage everybody to go to Joe Get for Congress and donate. I think I'll post the link in the YouTube, but we're not done with the conversation. I just wanted to stump that real fast and get it yeah, out there. That's good. So please uh, go and donate to Joe because he's an awesome guy. He's got a wealth of knowledge. He's got a, 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 an incredible background. He's a true American patriot. Uh, he, he, he himself has given a ton of... Uh, time out of his life and he's in his family has sacrificed greatly for this country. I don't think there's a better person to represent the, his, his district in Washington state. I don't think there's a better human to represent the veteran community in Congress. So uh, yeah, Thank definitely you. go and please donate. So as I transition next, which is how do you get around that? Which is when you have special interest in a pack, right? Because there's campaign um, limits. So yeah, I can only contribute 
what I think it's like twenty five hundred dollars, right? Was that or twenty three hundred dollars to? Yeah, you can do, do twenty nine in the primary, and then you can yeah. do twenty nine in the in the general. Yeah. Right. So I can only do that. So how come a pack or a special interest can can explain how that breaks down? Because I think this could be confusing to a lot of people as to how the money is spent and why. Yeah. And really important for people to understand this. It's incredibly complicated. I'll give a brief overview, and I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface on it. Uh, of what, just because of what I know, I, I literally have to pay someone to do this stuff for me so that I don't go to jail. Um, right. So, I mean, really, it's essentially really screw you if you screwed this up. No, like, you totally really screw you. Yeah. yeah, this is how I mean, like a lot of uh, guys like me um, from Republicans and Democrats who are first time, the first time they run, they're kind of doing it like literally paycheck by paycheck. This is how the establishment will take them down. They'll hire F- experts in FEC law. Mm-hmm. to go through their filings and just death by a thousand cuts. Like you guys didn't file this and someone gave you $10 too much. You did, you know, you know what I mean? So it's, it's uh, this is, this is, this is how they get you. But uh, really it's individuals can give up to $2,900 uh, for the general and for the general. So you can give 5,800 bucks all at once. And then it's on us to make sure that we have um, that 2,900 like leftover. And then, then that's all you can give to me for the entire cycle as right. an individual joke for congress.com. Um, eventually, and I can't have anything to do with this. So someone independently can start a pack for me. Um, right. maybe that's going to happen. Maybe not. And then people can give an additional $5,000 per individuals into that. And so what the special interests do is they'll have their, their donors and their board members who will flood, you know, $5,000 checks, $5,800 checks or $5,800 checks into individuals' campaigns. And then they'll have like a leadership pack and then they'll have a different pack. And then that will have its own iteration of $5,000 checks. Um, And then the super PACs, there's no limit on super PACs and super PACs are also anonymous. So a super PAC, essentially, if if you had the means, you could put thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars into it. And that super PAC technically can't coordinate with me as an individual. But it can start cutting ads for me. It can do really? all my mailing. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just technically not supposed to know about it. So they can they can basically show up at my events. They can film me, and they can be like they can cut a commercial based off that, or they can they can take it whichever direction they want. That's why at the end of political commercials, and I didn't know this, you'll hear some of them that say paid for and authorized by Joe Kent, and then right. you'll hear other ones that say like this is paid for by the the whatever the Joe Kent Victory 2020, you know, okay. uh, or something like that. That, that's why you'll hear those delineations and like every piece of literature you see will say paid for and authorized by the, the Joe Kent campaign or paid for and authorized by whoever it is. And so, so that's the difference. So if you're just a guy like me and you don't have like a super PAC and all that architecture set up, maybe someday I'll get there. Who knows? But if you're just a guy like me, you are kind of limited on that, those individual page, those individual uh, donations, which is I think it's very liberating. So people ask me all the time, like, hey, man, has, have they like taken you into like a back smoky room and like forced you? Like, this is the way it's going to be if you want any money. And the thing is, I'm primarying, I'm going after an incumbent. So I'm already kind of taboo within the GOP. The, the left hates me anyways. Right. And so really, I've been very much, I, I've been able to, I've had the luxury of being very free. Right. Um, because really it's on me to get out and ask and, and talk to people and, and say, Hey, can you guys give me some money? And cause that's, that's, that's literally, that's how I'm funding absolutely everything as opposed to the more well-established politicians who do get brought into that smoky room. And they're like, Hey, you do realize if you just change your stance on trade, if you just change your stance, maybe on foreign policy, 
Um, there's a lot of money available to you. There's at least, you know, $20,000 and $5,000 checks that's going to go into your campaign tonight. And then the super PAC is going to get flooded with, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then if you're uh, a congressman, you know that your job for the next 18 months just got way easier because as opposed to going and having to ask people for money, you just got your coffer filled up that way. So yeah, it's, it's pretty dirty, but right now, I mean, I, I do find it kind of liberating and this is something that, uh, uh, like Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Matt Gates, the the canceled members, I'd say they've really done a good job with like the, like because Trump when he was coming up on the scene he was independently wealthy, but the GOP hated him and they wanted him gone, so he didn't get any GOP money. He does now, I'm sure, because he's taken over the movement. But Trump like set records for individual checks that were cut to him from from Americans. Marjorie Taylor Greene too. I mean, she's gotten kicked off all of her committees. Continued to be outspoken, and she's like set records with just like nice little old ladies in Ohio and Florida and Pennsylvania, right? Your $50 checks, yeah. you know? So that's uh, I, I like that model much more than trying to go and win over the lobbyists. Yeah. It, the, I, I was, I was talking to um, one of the Latrells, uh, Morgan or Marcus, whatever it was. And they have now, they got a seal pack. Have you, have you seen that? I have. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I was thinking, I was like, why don't we have, why, why isn't there a vet pack? You know, you know what yeah. I mean? Isn't there like an SF pack? Have you heard of anything yet? Like, so there's a couple different ones out. Go out there and do it. Yeah, there's a couple different ones out there. Um, and here's the thing: we're in uncharted territory with going after incumbents. Okay. Like the the whole Trump impeachment vote, like opened that aperture up. Right. Uh, where there's there's more tolerance for it, but right now most of those veterans packs that I've talked to, um, I won't name any names, uh, right. but uh, cause I'm still hoping that some of them will change their mind. Right. Um, they are like, Hey man, like we support Republicans and you're primary Republican and that's taboo. So if you win the gender, if you win the primary, we will support you. Got that's it. what I've gotten from most people. So sometimes it's a little frustrating, but I'm still like, okay, well that just means I get to be 100% authentic. And when I go on podcasts, I say, Hey, joke for congress.com. <laughs> and when I go to events, I tell people like, Hey man, I'm, I'm passing on the hat because this is how this whole thing's running. And, and so far it's working, but yeah, they're, they're out there. Uh, I think seal pack is doing really well for the, I think five seals that are running right yeah. now. Um, I yeah. think they're, I think they're making some good traction. That's, and that's ran by Zinke, who I think is incredibly yeah. legit and he's running himself. He did great things in the Trump administration. So yeah. I, I, and I like most of those guys too. Like I love yeah. they're good guys. So I, I, I kept thinking about it as like, well, if the seals, like why they, they always do shit like this. Whereas like, God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why? Like we had it, we had, we had an opportunity. It's like, man, we could have like yep. got in like a, you know, a, a GB pack or something. Right. Yeah. It's like, because there's so many guys that I talk to you do too. Where I'm like, dude, you got to run. Like put your hat yeah. in the ring. Who cares? Just go. Just hit it. Let's go. I know it's a ton yeah. of work. Like you know it's a ton of work, but I don't think, at least in my lifetime, it's never been more important to have veterans involved in politics. Like Amen. it's never been more important. Like, yeah. And you know, I take it on the chin for supporting Tulsi. I, I'll support her till the fucking the 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 day that I that she says something so egregious I can't but I'm like she inspires a ton of people to get into politics I think more veterans need to get in politics I think more veterans need to have a direct representation in Congress and Senate and wherever else we can have representation because we can't find ourselves I think in another two decades of war where we don't have correct veteran representation to make good decisions exactly like we just can't and 
Uh, I think the more we can encourage our community to go out and actively participate in politics, the better our country is going to be because we bring, you know, your point, which is there's a million service members in the post kind of the post 9-11 veteran, you know, service member. We bring a very unique optic to, I think the, 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 the country that, a lot of people might be inclined to listen to based on our experience. Yeah. We, we got to encourage more vets to get out there and just run for mayor, uh, run for, you know, school board, man. Yeah. Get on the school board. Yeah. Yeah, No, I I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think, um, unfortunately, because like the, the GY is so unique because I, I don't know, I hardly know any, GWAT veteran who just did one tour. Like almost all of us are multi-tour people because we were all volunteer force. We're right. believers after 9-11. We stuck with it. So I understand the fatigue. But what I what I think is just absolutely critical, not just foreign policy. I definitely think going forward in foreign policy discussions, like that needs to be vet-centric. Like all these guys that are out there right now, and a lot of them are Republicans, they're like, send the troops to Ukraine. Like, okay, wait a sec. <laughs> Settle down, fella. Like you, you ever heard of shot fire in anger? Like, I didn't <laughs> yeah. think so. Like sit down. But then also just from another perspective, like, hey, we, after 9-11, like, we all volunteered and we, because we believe in this country. And unfortunately, because we let the establishment run these wars, it, it deviated from its initial purpose. And now our country is in a really bad spot. That's not our fault. But unfortunately, like, our service isn't over yet. And so I, I think we, I, I definitely hope we see more post 9-11 generation veterans step forward because we, we didn't get the big victory day celebration right. um, and that's not to say the country didn't respect us the country respects us i understand that but like our war was unfulfilling i mean look at the way that afghanistan ended i mean look at the way iraq ended before that like we've we have feelings of angst from that all of us do but i think taking those feelings and saying like there's not really going to be a foreign policy solution other than avoiding more catastrophic wars the solution is fixing and uniting our country right now and that's that's what we all have to i think uh, volunteer for one more time mm-hmm. So yeah, shifting completely out of politics uh, before you go and donate to Joe, but uh, shifting <laughs> out of uh, politics, what do you do? Like, what's your schedule look like? Like, how often are you on the on the road, stumping, giving speeches? Like, is it every day? Are you are you on the road right now? Like every day doing stuff? So luckily, the district is big, but it's drivable, and like I kind of live like I live just north of Vancouver, and it's actually kind of smack dab in the middle, so I can be home mornings, nights, early mornings, late nights. Um, so I still usually get to take my kids to school right. and, and or pick them up. Um, but I would say most nights, at least three days a week, I'm out. Um, I'm at events. I mean, it's going to slow down a little bit for the holidays, mostly because people just don't want to hear about politics during the holidays. Yeah. Um, but we've, we've been pretty busy. So since I announced I've done, we're pushing up on 110 in-person um, events where I'm, I'm, I'm talking to people, answering questions, that type of stuff. So it's been pretty busy, man. So like the, the schedule is, is pretty hectic between doing media and then uh, staying active in the district and then having to go to things like CPAC down in Texas and you right. know, uh, a couple of the different conventions in Florida and that type of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's been pretty 24 seven. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't imagine. Are you, uh, what, what other medias are, I get, cause I, I've seen you on Tucker. I've seen you on Tim. Uh, oh, you did, um, uh, who's the guy that used to be at Breitbart? Uh, oh, uh, Bannon. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did his show. Who's yeah, that? Man. I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah, I, I've been on Warren quite a bit, man. So Warren really? is pretty awesome. Yeah, is yeah. I would, I would definitely recommend folks to check out Steve Bannon's War Room. I think Steve is staying ahead. He he stays probably a couple months ahead of the news cycle. Right. Um, and then as far as the, the nationalist populist movement goes, Steve is probably the intellectual, the intellectual driving power behind that. And then his audience is very active. So if you go on there and you say, Hey, donate to these candidates, like it actually it, it happens. And then also, yeah, like pretty instantaneous. And as far as like pushing out content, they're really good. So Bannon's leading this whole movement of taking over the Republican party right now at the local level. So he's, he's having people go out and become precinct chairman, um, at the different County Republican parties. And that's really had a huge effect. So Bannon's war room is just fantastic. So I've been on there virtually and then been actually in the war room at the old Breitbart embassy. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really, really, really cool. So he's, he's, uh, I, I'd say he's probably him and Tucker, uh, kind of different audiences. I mean, there's some yeah. crossover there. Um, but they're, they're probably the, the two driving forces in the movement right now. And so on, on Tucker too, that was pretty awesome. Tucker's uh, well. Like I talked to one of his best yeah. friends today and, uh, I didn't realize this, but uh, he's a deadhead. Like the guy was telling me, he's like, yeah, Tucker. <laughs> and I was like, Look, are you serious? He's like, yeah, he's a yeah. weird, wears Birkenstocks and is a deadhead. And I was like, that's fucking hilarious. And uh, yeah, what was, what was Bannon? Because there, he got like, and I don't know. That's what I'm asking. What happened a few months ago? Cause he got like rolled up or indicted or something. Yeah. What, what was that all Jay- about? So there's the January 6th commission right now, which is being ran by like Liz Cheney, Adam Kissinger, and a bunch of like crazy Democrats that are still going with the whole narrative that like Trump and Steve Bannon tried to overthrow the government on January 6th. That's their hypothesis. So he was rolled up on that? (laughs) He was indicted on that? Yep. They they subpoenaed him and he refused the subpoena. Like they basically said, come testify before Congress. He said, no, make me. And unprecedented, they actually um, held him in contempt and so that means he has to surrender himself to the DOJ. Now, the Republicans back in the Obama era, they held um, Obama's, they held, held Eric Holder for Fast Eric and Furious, held him in contempt, and it was never enforced. So this is this, a subpoena from a, a congressional committee hasn't been enforced, I think, in like 40 years, maybe even longer. And But for Bannon, because Bannon's like the boogeyman to them. Yeah. They they threw the book at him. And it's funny because Bannon, like he broadcasts and lives in DC. And so basically he was just like, you guys know where I live, man, come get me. So the great thing is he made them do that. Like it was kind of a game of chicken and you know, cool. Steve eventually went and surrendered him, surrendered because he, you know, he's claiming, because they want to know all his private communications with Trump when Trump was sitting in the white house. And obviously that's executive privilege. That's like, there's, there's laws that protect the, the communications that the president has of his advisors. And so now they've done the same thing with Mark Meadows, who was literally Trump's chief of staff. And so now, now they're trying to hold Mark Meadows in contempt as well. So there's a pretty interesting legal battle going on there. And it, but it just ties into this huge narrative of like anybody who dissents from the Biden administration and the mainstream media's narrative, like they're going to be rolled up, whether you're Steve Bannon, whether you're Mark Meadows, or you're a parent that shows up at a school board meeting and the DOJ labels you as a domestic terrorist like there's ramifications and like right now I think some really pretty dark and scary things are happening with the way that our national security apparatus is being turned against your average citizen yeah that's that's that is incredibly scary because when you think about 
the uh, the overall consequence, right, from Fast and Furious, which basically, and I had uh, Katie Pavlich, she did a book on Fast and Furious a few years ago. Uh, and if you're familiar, if you're familiar with it, then you know you're familiar with it. If you're not, you have to do your research on it because it's one of the most egregious uh, acts of government. Uh, I would say overreach and inappropriate yeah. behavior. I think it in it outside of some of the the war efforts that were conducted is, is specifically. Uh, we could go into that, but when we're talking about the ATF supplying firearms in South America and then blaming it on American business people, like it is insanity. So Katie did a great book on it. She says she's going to do another one uh, soon, which I hope she does because if you don't know anything about it, you should be. If anything, people should be still pissed off about this and that, yeah, like holding him in contempt and then not enforcing it, but then enforcing, not enforcing it. it. Fucking unbelievable that they would, that yeah. so hypocritical. And at the time, I mean, Eric Holder was running the department of justice. Yes. His doesn't get enforced, but Steve Bannon at the time he had left the Trump administration. Yes. He had a pot. He had a podcast, a podcast. and you can go, you, you can pull up his podcast from January 6th, where he's saying, this is the constitutional process. Well, this is what's about to take place right now. And they're saying that somehow Steve Bannon like led the insurrection when he was sitting in his podcast studio. So it's, I mean, I don't see how there's not where all the civil libertarians that were on the left went. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's pretty telling that like everyone's like, oh, good. Yeah. Turn, turn the FBI against Steve Bannon. But it's like, okay, so a podcaster, that's who we're going after now. Like you, you can, people are really showing themselves for their, their true colors, and their true beliefs. Well, it, it, it's interesting because I, I heard this analogy a few years ago. It's like uh, when people would use the government uh, for their own means, they often forget that the same tools can be turned on them. And it's like going into, oh, yeah. going into a fist fight with a handgun or a knife. What you have to realize is that when you use it, it can be turned and will be turned against you. It doesn't matter when. Yep. So even yep. though it feels good at the time, it's like a boomerang, man. It might come right back to you. So that's where it's like, you get these guys that are fire breathers and they're just like, go, go, go. And it's like, actually, no, <laughs> we don't want that to come back against any one of us in, in, in the future. And so it's interesting that uh, you're right. The civil libertarians are like, oh, they're nowhere to be found in the, in the, in some of the portions of, you know, the left. I think I've even gotten out of the, uh, the, the narrative now, because I run into a bunch of people on the left that are like not ultra left. And I think they're almost just like by proxy at times. I'm like, well, yeah, I've been a Democrat because my dad was a Democrat. My grandfather was a Democrat. They don't even think about politics. But then once you start yeah. packing it and you're like, well, you think about all these things. Like I think about it a lot right now where my grandfather was a hardcore uh, FDR Democrat. Like, but he was probably the most conservative guy I knew but he was FDR Democrat. And my dad has been basically a John Bircher Republican forever. But those two guys have way more in common than they wouldn't even recognize like some of the things that are coming out of like the, the Democrat party. They, they just wouldn't. They, so there are a lot of people that aren't politically sophisticated that, and I wouldn't even bucket myself into that category. But I think a lot of people just default to like lineage of party at times when they're like, Oh yeah. actually." kind of, what do you think, man? Like, like unpack it. Like what, what's right. going on? So I think you're right with this new movement where the Scooby-Doo mask of the government has been pulled off. <laughs> yeah. Like a you lot of these like paradigms yep. are breaking and they're going, Oh wait, I, I actually don't want that. Uh, 
I think that that's that's interesting. And the other, the, there's one more question that I want to get into, but is like outside of politics, like tell me more about like who you are. What do you do, man? Like what's what's your hobbies outside of raising kids? Do you have any hobbies? What do you do? Really, just being a dad, man. I mean, it's seven little kids. You know the deal. Like they keep you pretty busy, twenty four seven almost. Right. So that that's I mean that's pretty much what I do. That and try and work out and stay fit. That's the those are the big things. So you're working out. And you're raising yeah, staying fit, chasing the kiddos. Yeah, trying to be as active as I can in the kids' lives. I mean, that's that's absolutely huge. No, it's huge. And then one of these days we'll get you out here and we'll do uh we'll do an Elcon or something. We'll come out and actually kill something. So Joe, before yeah. you go one more time, where can people donate? Uh Joe Kent for Congress.com. That's the website. It's the best spot to go for make a donation. All right, awesome, man. Hey, thank you so much for uh for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Everybody. Yeah, man. Thank you. Check him out. Go donate. Uh, we need more guys like Joe out there representing America. Uh, thank you so much for everything you've done, brother. All right, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. That concludes today's training. Any questions?